Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. That's the ark of the covenant. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. We have been following the children of Israel since the plains of Moab, where they crossed the Jordan River, and now they're about to fight the first battle in the Promised Land. And this is all happening in the month of Nisan. This is the first month of the Hebrew calendar. On the 10th day of Nisan, Israel crossed the Jordan River. God parted the waters and they crossed over. We know that the children of Israel at some point before Passover were circumcised. The men had not been circumcised. It was an act of disobedience on the part of the Israelites during the wilderness wandering. But that took place prior to Passover, which happened on the 14th day of the month, which is when Passover is celebrated. Reason I bring all this up is first of all, it helps us date it. It's the time of the year, time of spring, the spring harvest, but also because we are about to have a seven-day stretch here that is very important that many people believe would have taken place during the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread from the 15th to the 21st of Nisan. The passage does not confirm that. It could be that they celebrated Passover and there was any number of days prior to the conquest of Jericho, but it does seem to be that the text is saying they celebrated Passover and then for seven days, they marched around Jericho uh, preparing for when they would go in and, and take possession of the city. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you remember, was to commemorate leaving Egypt when God passed over them with the, the, the uh, death of the firstborn, the 10th plague. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread is to remember that God led them out of Egypt in haste. They didn't have time to let the bread rise. Well, now it's just, it's wonderful timing how the Lord is bringing them into the land at the same time of the year when they are celebrating that exodus. This is sometimes called in theological terms, the isodus, the going into, as opposed to the exodus, the coming out of, but that's a really weird term. So we're not going to use it. We'll just, we'll just call it the conquest. If you want more details about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you can look at it in Leviticus chapter 23. Last time we saw Joshua in chapter 5, he had encountered the Lord, the angel of the Lord, while he was considering Jericho, while he's imagining what are we going to do to break into this fortified city. And we didn't see what the Lord said in the last chapter. God told him, I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord. Take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground, just like with Moses. And now we're going to see what the Lord told him. First, God is going to assure him, we're going to take Jericho. Sometimes God tells us he's going to do something, and then you look at it, and it can be intimidating. So God comes in and assures him, you are going to take the city. I've delivered it into your hands. And then he tells him how. I would imagine Joshua looking at this walled city is thinking, how are we going to take that? Coming up with strategy, are we going to build siege engines? Are we going to be able to build a siege mound? Should we starve them out? Very common tactic at this time. What do we do? And the Lord says, here's my battle plan. Get the whole army together and march around the city. Once a day for six days. 
And then on the seventh day, march around it seven times. Make sure you've got the Ark of the Covenant with you, have the priests blowing their trumpets, and then at the end you will shout with a great shout and the walls will collapse. We're familiar with the story, but that is not a strategy that any general in the entire world would come up with. And if he were to come up with that strategy, he would not be a general for very long. And you might think, well, people believe all sorts of crazy things. Yes, they do. But military men especially tend to be rather practical individuals. Like, that's great. We'll march around it, and then we'll attack the city. We'll march and shout, and then we'll assault with the siege ramps and the battering ram and do all that. But the Lord says, no, the walls will come falling down. This is only possible, the kind of strategy that is only possible by the power of Almighty God. If God is not with them, this simply will not work. And the lesson that we've been drawing from this, this book of Joshua, if the promised land represents, among other things, but represents the abundant life in Christ, we've come out of sin, out of Egypt, we've gone through the wilderness wandering and encountered the Lord, but now we're desiring to come into all that God has for us. There are many strongholds and obstacles that we are going to face. This is why they didn't want to go into the promised land in the first place. Because they said, there's no way we're going to attack these fortified cities and defeat them. In the same way, for you and me, very often, there are parts of your life that God wants to sanctify and bless. But because there is a fortification in the middle of it that intimidates us, it goes unconquered. Because God will often give us instructions. We say, Lord, how are you going to help me get rid of this thing in my life? This situation, this sin, whatever it is. And then God tells you how to do it. And you go, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I like that very much. God's instructions are not always to our liking. Have you ever been asked by somebody for advice? And then you give it to them. And they say, well, I don't know if I like that advice. It's frustrating, isn't it? Because you're like, you asked me. I'm not boasting in how I say this here, but this has happened to me several times where I'll have friends of mine that I went to school with or went to youth group with and I'll get in touch with them again and their life is just a mess. And they'll say, man, Tyler, you know, you're married, you're still married, you've got kids, you've got a, a job in your own house and man, what, what am I doing wrong? I've been asked this before. And I tell them, guys, I'm not doing anything special. I'm just doing the things we were always taught to do. You gotta follow Jesus, you gotta obey the word and you tell them and they go, ah, I just don't know if I can believe that. I said, well, pal, you asked, all right? You came to me saying, what's the secret to a good marriage? And I said, serve the Lord, love your wife, submit to your husband. You say, well, I don't know if I agree with that. Well, I'm the one with a good marriage. You asked me. Again, I'm not boasting, but this is what has happened before. I don't mind giving glory to the Lord and saying, when you obey God's word, it goes better for you. But when God gives us instructions on how to deal with these obstacles, we don't always like them. Lord, I've got lust in my life, this, this lust of the flesh. How do I defeat it? What does the Bible say? Flee youthful lust. The Bible doesn't tell you fight youthful lust. How did Joseph conquer lust? Joseph was the hot young guy working for Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife was constantly coming on to him. And he said, no, 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 no. Finally, she set it up so that nobody else was in the house but her and him. And it says that she tore his robe when he ran from her, which means she was literally dragging him into bed with her. And Joshua didn't say, or Joseph didn't say, Lord, give me strength to resist this temptation. Joseph ran. He got out of there. 
That's how the Bible teaches us to deal with sin. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, put it through an accountability program and, uh, and discipleship to make sure that it learns not to do that. What did Jesus say? Cut it off and cast it from you. Well, that's going to hurt. He says, yeah, but it would be better for you to go into heaven with a hand missing than to go into hell with all your parts. Well, I don't know if I like that very much. I can't quit that job. I need that job. I can't get rid of my phone. I need that phone. I can't stop talking to her. I like her. Well, that's what the Bible says. Lord, I just have this, this sickness. What do I do? He said, if any of you is sick, let him come to the elders of the church. They'll anoint him with oil, lay hands on him, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. Well, it's not too scientific, Jesus. What exactly is not scientific about that? You believe in God, don't you? Well, I don't think God does that anymore. Well, he does. How many of you in this room have yourselves been healed or somebody you know that firsthand has been healed by the Lord? Look around the room. Yeah, don't tell me God's not still healing, folks. Of course he is. But we're like, I just don't know. I, I've, I can, I've prayed for folks that I'm like, Lord, please heal them. And I'm just like, Lord, I want you to do this. There are others I start to lay hands on them and pray and I'm like, not judging. I'm just like, they're not going to be healed. As you can see, there's not a lick of faith. Like I'm doing this to be nice to you, Reverend, and I like you and you're great, but I, I just don't know about that. Now, again, does God always heal people? No, but that's what he's told us to do. And sometimes we're like, I would never in a million years get up and ask for prayer unless, you know, there was no other chance. Even though that's what the Lord tells us to do first. God, I've got depression and anxiety and fear. How do I deal with that? The Lord says, do not be anxious for anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Wait a minute, so all you're doing is telling me to pray? You know, there are pastors that will stand up and rebuke folks for saying that. You can't just tell people with mental health issues just to pray and it'll all get better. That's insensitive. Well, that's what Paul said. But then he says, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good, whatever things are true or noble or of good report, think on these things and the peace of God will be with you. Train your mind. Stop thinking the way you're thinking. That just seems insensitive. Fix me. I'm trying to help you, the word says. Well, how do we conquer our enemies? Lord, there's somebody who hates me. They're trying to persecute us. They're trying to abuse me. They're trying to stop us. What do we do? Jesus said, get in your enemy's face and say, I stand in the name of the living God. And if you touch me, God's going to strike you dead. <laughs> what did Jesus say? Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Do good to those who hate you. Man, that's the first thing we learned that Jesus said, and we still ain't learned how to do it, have we? But you don't know what they're trying to do to us. Yeah, they nailed Jesus to a cross. Oh, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Maybe the next time you see folks acting crazy online, instead of getting angry, how about drop on your knees and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, they know good and well what they're doing. Sin blinds people. Don't you know that? Don't you remember when you got saved and that first six months was horrifying? You started realizing all the sin you've been committing? Like, oh, how did God ever save me? Grace, baby, grace. What am I trying to say? That often the instructions God gives us on how to deal with things are not the things that we want. And they only make sense if God is real. Add to that the specific instructions that God often gives to your individual situation that sometimes leave you just as puzzled as you were before. Philip was preaching in Samaria. Samaritans were getting saved, y'all. 
There was a revival in Samaria. They had a different canon. They didn't acknowledge miracles. They didn't believe that Messiah was Jesus until the gospel came. Well, are you sure they're saved? Yeah, well, they've been baptized in water and with the Holy Spirit. And they're just, wow, the Lord is bringing together the tribes that have been separated for all this time. And the word of the Lord comes to Philip, who's leading all this. Oh, God, what next? He says, leave and go to the desert. Lord, it's a revival going on. There's people getting saved. I, I'm going to wake up in the morning with like 10 more people that are going to need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and get their, their cancer healed and their, their demons driven out. Lord, how, how can you send me to the desert? What are you going to have me do there? He says, I need you to preach to one guy. One guy. Are you going to put me like right in front of him or something so like he'll know I'm from God? He says, no, I'm just going to have you like run and just catch up to him and say, hey, hey, pal, do you know what you're reading? It doesn't make any sense. But what did, what did Philip do? He obeyed. And when he gets there, he leads this Ethiopian eunuch to Jesus. And what does that guy do? Church history tells us he goes home and begins the church in Africa, which lasted and continues to last for a long time. Isn't that awesome? But Lord, what about this, though? What am I trying to say? God tells us to do things that don't make any sense unless he's real. And say, Lord, I don't understand. And then there are even people that will tell you that if something God tells you to do doesn't make logical sense, you shouldn't do it. I'll tell that to Philip or Hosea or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Joshua. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, the Lord says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Okay, yeah, I mean, God is greater than us, but he's not that much greater than us, right? Our logic can still, he says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, how high are the heavens? You know, the amazing thing is that scientists have discovered that the universe is expanding, like always moving outward. So, so how much higher than your thoughts are God's thoughts? You know, the high score is still rolling up. <laughs> It's like when you get, you know, you get the ski ball jackpot and the tickets just keep on coming out. That's how much higher. That's how much higher. So you need to accept right now that you will not always understand God's instructions. Whether that's move here, talk to him, go there, or even if it's just the moral instructions the Bible gives us. You're not always going to understand them. That's not because God doesn't make sense. It's because you are so inferior to him that you can't grasp it yet. He is God. You are not. End of story. But if God got you out of Egypt and into the promised land, you should trust that he knows what he's doing and he's wiser than you. Amen? We spend an awful lot of time trying to convince those that do not believe that all of this really makes sense. I swear it does. And it does. But if you're not operating with all the variables, like Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead, it's never going to make any sense. That's why we declare the truth and just trust the Holy Spirit to do his work. Well, verse 6 so Joshua, the son of Nun, they always use his full name when it's a pivotal moment in the book of Joshua. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. 
The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, he does that a lot, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually, and the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. Joshua obeyed God to the letter, ordering the people to march in formation around the city. Now, how might this have looked? Well, we've got to remember back in Numbers chapter 10, it tells us the marching order of the children of Israel. You had three tribes that would go out in front. It was Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. These were the strongest tribes that would go, for, go first. Then you would have the clans of the Levites that would carry the different implements of the temple. You had the Gershonites who carried all of the hangings of the tabernacle. They carried the, the uh, not the veil of the temple, that was wrapped around the ark, but all the cloth pieces that were spread over the tabernacle. Then you had the Merarites, the sons of Merari, I doubt those clans would have been marching in this battle because the tabernacle would have been in the camp while they were waiting. So then in the middle, you had Reuben, Simeon, and Gad that came after them. Then in the middle, you had the Kohathites who had the distinct honor of carrying the Ark of the Covenant. So they would have been there. These would have been Kohathites. Then you had the remaining six tribes that came after. That's the rear guard, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. So there you have it. And remember, as we say, the Ark of the Covenant was not out in gold and shining in the sun. They would have taken the Ark in order to pack it up. Remember, they had the poles that extended out past the veil of the tabernacle of the holy place. They would detach the veil, walk it forward, and cover the Ark. Then they had a special blue cloth that they would place over that, and then they would pick it up by the poles and carry it. So there's that picture in Indiana Jones of it like sending out lightning and stuff. It's not how it would have looked in scripture, it tells us. And the people were to be silent, and the only noise was to be the marching of their feet and the seven priests who were blowing the trumpets. This would have been a rather ominous sight for those that were living in Jericho. They're not shouting, they're not talking trash, they're just marching. You know, it's always fun to see that somebody in like basketball or football or whatever, and they're talking a bunch of trash and getting in everybody's face, but then there's always that old vet that just kind of you know, it's kind of like showing up for work, you know, and he just kind of shows up with that stone cold look on his face and like, yeah, this guy's loud, but that guy scares me. <laughs> and that's what they were doing. Once a day for six days, likely, as I said, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is real specific obedience. If you want to overcome strongholds, you've got to obey down to the letter every word that God said, even as we just discussed, you do not understand the instructions. It is kind of tedious as you read this passage. God said this block of text, and then Joshua said this block of text, and then they did this block of text. And like, why do they keep on saying it over and over? Because it's trying to tell you they did it exactly the way God said it. To communicate obedience. We today are not really known 
as a people for faithfulness. Meaning if you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it. Let's talk about New Year's resolutions, for example. How many of y'all had the same New Year's resolution for the last decade and you still haven't done it? You don't have to raise your hand. Just sit in shame. (laughs) We would all much rather agree with an idea than actually implement that idea. We'd rather say, yes, that would be a good idea than actually do it. What do I mean by this? Well, you know, there's lots of people online that are teaching you how to lose weight and they have millions and millions of followers. Those are not all skinny people following those people. There's lots of folks that have very strong opinions about the best diet and the best workout. And you were to maybe discuss it with them and say, maybe you ought to implement one of those ideas rather than just sit there and have an opinion on the best one. I've been that guy. I'm not afraid to to call that out. Or people that are following all of these beautiful fashionistas that'll tell you the best styles and the best way to do your hair. You ever know somebody that was really critical of the way somebody else dressed, then you take a look at them and it's like, where do you get off criticizing people like that? Or maybe the broke guy that knows the best way to invest your money. You ever meet that one? He follows all these, all those like uh, entrepreneur channels online and is like, here's how I bought five Bugattis this month. You're like, yeah, this, me and him are a lot, of, lot the same. We got the same ideas. It's like, yeah, okay, well, you live like in an attic. So maybe I shouldn't listen to you. I've also found, maybe to put it a little closer to home, the people that know the most about psychology and mental health issues are always the most messed up people you're ever going to meet. My wife got her degree in psychology and she'll tell you, you'll ask her afterwards if you like. She said there are two kinds of people. Number one, the people that should be there, that really want to learn and help folks. And the rest who are thinking this will be four years of government subsidized therapy for me. And then they walk out and they have armed with all these crazy ideas. And I've also found, I remember actually somebody, I won't say her name. None of y'all know her, but you never know. It's the internet. But my friend from high school, She told me one time, I'm not lying, she said, I really feel like since I've been through so many bad relationships, like I really understand the right way to do it now. And I remember just laughing, I'm like, you can't be serious. No, I'm serious. And because she had been through like 14 breakups that week and she's like, I'm really starting to dial this in now. And I I just need to share my wisdom with the world. And it's like, listen, I don't know if you're the one I wanna be listening to. Because we'd rather find a good idea, agree with it, and that makes us feel better about our lack of follow through. (laughs) This guy's an idiot. Doesn't he know that you shouldn't be doing cardio anymore? It's all just weights now. It's like, well, cardio done is better than anything else undone, isn't it? Or it's like, don't you know you shouldn't be investing in those kinds of funds? It's crypto is the way to go. It's like, well, something invested somewhere is better than that potential perfect thing that you have somewhere, right? As a musician, you meet lots of people that don't play guitar that are really good music critics. Now listen, if I were to play guitar, I'd be all up and down the neck, daddy. I'll tell you, I would never do it like that. What am I trying to say? We have opinions on things, but we don't do them. And it becomes the same thing with scripture. How long have you been struggling with that? How long have you been reading another book on how to conquer that sin? How long have you been listening to podcasts and Bible studies about how to overcome this thing? 
when the answer ultimately boils down to stop doing it. I remember counseling this guy and he had moved in with his girlfriend. I'm like, dude, that's, that's, that's sin. It's fornication. You can't, I know, it's just, it's really difficult to break out of this. And I was like, how difficult is it to call her up and saying we can't live together anymore? It's more complicated than that. The problem is it wasn't more complicated than that. Have you just not died to yourself? Don't you know that's step one? Step one is to die to yourself. Well, I just, I'm addicted or I'm struggling or I have this. You're dead if you're in Christ. I think a lot of times we'd rather be sinful is really what it amounts to. If we're dead honest, like in the middle of the night when nobody's there to hear, we'd rather be sinful. And the thought of never looking at pornography again just sounds like a miserable existence to you. Or the thought of never gossiping with my friends about somebody else would just break your heart and you feel like you'd lose all your friends. We'd rather be sinful. But because we know what the Bible says about it, because we go to church, because we cry about it every so often at church, we think that's enough. We make another New Year's resolution. But James tells us in James 1.25, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. You want to be blessed? You've got to do it. You can't just hear it and agree with it. James even said, you believe that God is one, you do well, but so do the devils. Demons and Satan all believe that there's only one God. You think that gets you points? It doesn't. I've said this before. I'll just say it again in this context. You know, many people are like, well, I believe that there is a difference between male and female. And there's only two genders. Congratulations. So has everybody else all over the world throughout all of history. You don't get extra credit. How about your life? When is the last time you and your spouse came together to take care of each other's needs? When is the last time, whatever your thing might be, if you've received wise counsel from a brother or sister, or if you've searched the scriptures and found your answer, or if God has spoken to you, just do it. There's no, there's no more complicated answer. You've just got to do it to stop sinning. That's Romans 6, right? We're no longer slaves to sin if we're in Christ Jesus. So stop presenting yourself as a slave, meaning stop showing up for duty at a place you don't work anymore. Joshua followed God's word to the letter. And guess what? For six days, he did not see one result. Nothing changed. There wasn't like one brick fell over the first day. And then the next day, the foundation shook. And then day three, there's a crack running through. Oh, look, progress. No, he just kept on going. And the people were full of faith. But you got to know there was some crotchety old man saying, you know, back in my day, we fought battles. We didn't walk around the city. Of course, all the old men had died at that point. That was part of the reason God made them wander for 40 years. You also do likewise. Receive the instructions of the Lord, but don't think that's enough. You've got to do them. You've got to do them. Verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction." 
Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. The walls came a-tumbling down. They rose early on day seven. Why so early? Because they needed to circle the city seven times. Some archaeologists speculate that Josh, Jericho was a strong city, but not necessarily a large city, we have to, which they say would allow for them to actually go around the city seven times, but uh, the scripture is silent on that. It was an important one because it was the first fortified city on that side of the Jordan. But as they finish... Joshua turns and addresses the people. He reminds them of their victory. Don't you love that? The city is ours. They haven't done anything yet. Just walk around it for a bunch of times. He reminds everyone of the victory, the need to destroy the city. You're going to go in and you're going to see things that you like. You're going to see people crying out for mercy. You're going to see money that you're going to want to keep. You're going to see beautiful women that you're going to want to ravish when your blood gets up. But no, it's for the Lord. The only one we spare is Rahab. And remember, she had the scarlet cord hanging in her, in her window. And the priest blew a long blast, seven trumpets, the big one. And all the men shouted, man, that must have sounded like something. Their army was 600,000 men all at once. Oh, just shaking. And then the walls fell down. And it says literally in Hebrew, it fell down under itself in a heap. The, you know, the ESV has fall down flat, which is good. The idea being it didn't like explode outward. It just stopped being a wall and became a pile of rocks. That's how the Lord does it. Whatever the Lord was doing to make those rocks adhere together, he said, no more. And it was gone. It wasn't like they yelled so loud that the walls fell in. God knocked the wall down. Imagine the joy of the men as they saw that happen. And even if you're shouting before a football game, you get all excited. Like, I'm not even playing in this game. I want to hit somebody. <laughs> right? You get all hyped up. And then the walls come down, crash. And then Jer Joshua, let's go. And they charge up into the city. But imagine also the fear of the men of Jericho. Maybe they were starting to despise Israel a little bit. Like, do they think something's going to happen? It's been a week. And they're just like, kind of like, what are, you, what are they doing? Like, we've heard amazing things about these people, but they haven't done a whole lot. They haven't fired any arrows. They haven't even made a war cry yet. And then their walls collapse. And the people of, Jer people of Israel sacked the city of Jericho. And you should not sugarcoat what it meant that they did this. This is the common apologetics way to go. We're not going there. They slaughtered the people in that city. It was the beginning of the judgment of the Canaanites that the Lord had promised would come. And the same judgment that Israel would receive later when they committed the same sins. But we will discuss this more later, meaning from the apologetics and the ethical view here. But it says over and over again, they devoted all in the city to destruction. This is an important Hebrew word. The verb is haram. And it means to devote, like to set aside. Uh, if it is a devoted thing, 
The noun is cherem. It was cherem. Everything in this city will be cherem. We're going to haram this city to devote it, meaning it's been set aside like a burnt offering for the Lord is haram, like it is set aside. We're going to offer this city as the first fruits of our conquest. And they did exactly that. There is power when you obey the word of the Lord. I know we kind of went down in that last section talking about our, often our failure to obey his instructions. Can I just remind you about why we do this? There is stronghold breaking power when we obey what the Lord says. Even if you do not understand the reasons that God gives. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 6. Though we walk in the flesh, what's flesh? Feel this, this is flesh. Flesh, carne in Latin and in Spanish. Meat, we walk in the flesh, the body. But we are not waging war according to the flesh. For our weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. That's exactly what Joshua experienced. And we have that in Christ. How does it manifest? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. I'm going to look at that passage again real, real closely here. First thing he says is we have divine power to destroy spiritual strongholds. So stop moping around under the walls of Jericho in your life thinking I'll never get over this. You have divine power to destroy those strongholds. Second thing you learn, this is spiritual power, not carnal. Meaning you are not about to white knuckle your way to holiness. You're not going to do a thousand spiritual push-ups and a thousand spiritual pull-ups and now I can conquer sin. No, it's divine power, not of the flesh. Divine power, meaning, well, how do I access that? Yeah, it's the, we don't really know how, do we? That's the point. You're dependent upon God for that power. Number three, it involves the conquest of thought and action. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. First thing we're destroying are mental strongholds, ways of thinking that do not align with Scripture. Bad theology, false doctrine, lies the devil has caused you to believe, philosophies you've imbibed from the world, something that somebody has told you that you refuse to let go of, that raise themselves up against what the scripture says. Things like, I don't need a savior. We destroy that. I'm no good. No one could ever love me. We destroy that argument. There's many ways to God. We destroy that argument. Jesus Christ was not who he said he was. We destroy that by our divine power. But also action, punishing every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Everywhere in your life where there's disobedience, Paul says we have to punish that. Find it in your life and punish it. And not like tell it to go take a time out. I'm talking like the comic book, The Punisher. The guy who shows up and... Uh, takes care of people, punishes them, shall we say. This part of my life is not obeying Christ. Get rid of it. This area of my life, I'm not doing what Jesus said. I'm not loving my neighbors. That's got to go. I'm not submitting to my husband. That's got to go. I'm not telling the whole world of the knowledge of Jesus. That's got to go. Punishing every disobedience until your obedience is complete. That's impossible. Well, what does he say? 
Are we ever going to be without the temptation to sin? No. But the Bible tells you that you can walk as close with Jesus that it almost makes no difference. You'll always be struggling, but the Bible expects and intends you to walk in victory. If we just say, well, Christians just sin, that's what they do. We are rejecting the power of the Holy Spirit that the Bible has promised to us. And the way we win this battle, number four from that passage, is that all of it comes through submission to Christ. Take everything captive to obey Christ. That's what we're after. We're not trying to stop lusting for its own sake. We're not trying to stop being greedy for its own sake. We're not even trying to love our wives and not provoke our children for their sake. It is all for the sake of Christ. It's all for the sake of Jesus. If there's anything in your life that you cannot do through faith in Jesus, the Bible says that's sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And many times the way the devil builds a stronghold around that sin is he finds something that you like. And that's the wall that he builds. And because you won't tear down that wall, the sin remains. But the thing is, God can overcome problems that take years to create and decades to solve if you come to him in faith. What will take many scars and lots of pain and terrible wounds, Jesus says, I can handle that in one go. If you will obey what he said, Joshua and Israel won this mighty victory without carnal power because of their obedience to the Lord. Not through force, but through simple obedience. We're going to do what Jesus say, said, and that's that. For his sake, not even for my own, for his sake. The thing is, Jesus will let you run to the end of your strength. He'll let you use up all that oil in your jar until you've only got one measure left. And then he says, now that's the measure that I want. And if you give it to me, it'll last forever. But if you still have that part of you that says, no, I, I think I can do this. That's the part that's got to die, man. You've got to die to yourself until you can live in Christ. Verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. The city is burning. The walls are collapsed. People are dying. But God remembers Rahab. The judgment of Canaan had be, has finally begun. God told Abraham in Genesis 15, 16, I'm not going to give you the promised land yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. Meaning, these people have not sinned to the point where, well, I have to judge them and drive them out of their land. But it's been almost 450 years, well, plus since he said it to Abraham, more like 500. And now that's enough. 500 years is plenty of chances to repent, don't you think? That tells you how patient God is. Like, oh man, things have gone so bad since the 90s. We're going down. Just remember that the Lord is centuries long patient with people. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. I need that. 
The judgment of Canaan has begun, but God has already shown grace to the one family who bowed before him. For those that want to get really uncomfortable and upset about the conquest of the Canaanites, may I remind you that the first Canaanite that encountered Israel was saved? What do you think might have happened if Jericho had opened the doors and in sackcloth and ashes said, we will serve the Lord, you can have our city? What do you think might have happened? Bible tells us what happens. Bible says, I do not desire in the death of anybody, but that they would turn from their sin and repent. But what do we see at the beginning of this chapter? The gates were shut. Their hearts were hard. They were not even considering the possibility of surrender. Well, it's a hard thing to ask a nation to surrender to their conquerors. You know, that's why they threw Jeremiah in prison. Because he was telling the Israelites, you need to surrender to Babylon because they're coming to judge you. So God doesn't play favorites, even with his favorites. God shows grace. Their family was brought out of the city. They were placed outside the camp. They were Gentiles. They were unclean. But later on, they were brought in. Rahab is going to marry a man named Salmon. I wonder if he was one of those spies. Just makes me wonder. Salmon and Rahab. They would have a son named Boaz, who would marry a woman named Ruth who would have a son named Obed, who would have a son named Jesse, who would have a son named David. That's redemption, my friends. I bet you in that, in that house, in that brothel where they were hiding, this, our nation is being judged for its sins and we're hiding in a brothel? And they hear the walls collapse. They hear the people charging through. I bet you there were a few false alarms, guys knocking on the door and somebody, no, 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 they've got the red cord. And move on, hearing the people dying all around them, smelling the smoke of the city burning. It's, it's all over. There's no way they're going to remember us. And then the door opens up, and it's those two spies. Say, you've got protection. Come with us. That's what salvation is. It's also one reason among many why we believe in the rapture, because God does not punish with the righteous, with the unrighteous. The Lord is a redeemer. Many times we fear to obey the Lord's command to destroy a sinful stronghold in our life because there is something good mixed in with all the sin. Maybe there's a friend that we love, we've known for years, but they're constantly bringing us down. We say, Lord, if I, if I stop drinking to protect my own family, what am I going to do with her? Because she's going to be insulted by that. And then I'm going to lose her friendship. And she, I'm the only Christian she knows. And she's going to go to hell. Therefore, I'm going to keep on going to the place of temptation and sinning. Maybe there's a goal we desire. Jesus tells us, like he told the rich young ruler, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. But Lord, I wanted to be a millionaire by the time I was 50. I've been living that way my whole life. And I can do it. The Lord goes, yeah, but you're bound up by greed. And you've got to start living righteously, even if it means you lose that. Maybe there's certain philosophies we admire, certain things that we believe. Look, I, I believe the Bible, first and foremost, don't get me wrong, but I mean, Buddhism has a lot of good to say. Well, let's bring it closer to home. The Enlightenment thinkers had an awful lot of good to say. I went to school and I read the philosophers and we shouldn't discount postmodernism entirely. Or maybe you just don't want to lose what the enemy is holding hostage. So you stay in bondage. The devil is not afraid to take hostages. He'll take things that you love and he'll convince you that if you get rid of this sin, that person is going to be lost. You'll never enjoy your life ever again. 
But when you obey God's word entirely, he is faithful to preserve blessings for you through it all. Isn't he? God told Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him to me as a burnt offering on a mountain. And that was it. God hung up the phone, didn't give him any other information. And they get up on top of that mountain, and Ahab, or Abraham bound up his son, raised the knife to slaughter his son, and that's when the angel came in and said, Stop! In Genesis 22, I have the wrong verses up here, but it's the following section, 15 through 18. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. When you give something to God, he refines it. He redeems it. And he returns it to you as something to possess free of sin. Was it bad for Abraham to have a son named Isaac? Of course not. Was the gift of God, the child of laughter, the one he'd been praying for, for generations. It was over 100 years old. Now he's got this lad, his own. And God says, I want you to get rid of him. Sacrifice him to me. Now God was never intending to allow him to kill his son. What was he doing? He's saying, Are you, do you really love me, Abraham? Or were you just loving me all this time? so that you could get this child that you wanted. And once he was willing to give him up, he received Isaac back. And he received blessing and was renewed the covenant. The Lord said, I'm not going to have you crucify your son. I'll send my son to die, not only in his place, but in yours. Which is why when he turned, he saw caught in the thicket, caught in the thorn bush, you might say, a ram. How about that? When you give something to God, he gives it back to you, refined and ready for you to possess. But you cannot assume the blessing and disobey his word. Yeah, I know that this can be a stumbling block, but God could redeem it and restore it. So I'm just going to skip the, this, the obedience part and just claim it. That's not good. Yes, I know that you can have money and still be a, a good believer, but you know, uh, I know Jesus is telling me to get rid of this stuff or to change up the way I do business, but let's just assume that I did and that Jesus has already given it back to me. I can't tell you how many people have come to me for marriage counseling or for addiction counseling or whatever it is, and they want to know what to do, and they're so desperate, they're so broken, and I tell them, you've got to do these things. Here's the three things you've got to do, just obviously, to knock this thing out. And when you do that, God will restore it to you. And they say, yes, yes, you're right. Then they go home and they say, you know, I thought about it and I feel much better now. And you, like you said, God will restore things back. I think he already did. I say, no, he didn't. Satan led up on the temptation to trick you. Obey first. And that's when the wall smashing power comes in. And then the blessings will come. We can't destroy Jericho. Rahab's in there. Don't you trust the Lord to preserve what he has said he would preserve? Rahab would become the mother even of Jesus Christ himself. Do not let the fear of loss keep you from laying hold of Jesus. Verse 26 to the end now. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. And we have the little Hebrew poetry here. 
At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundations, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord, verse 27, was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Joshua cursed Jericho to remain uninhabited forever, and that whoever rebuilds it will lose their children. It was to be a memorial forever of God's power, of Israel's victory, that God is able to overcome and perform miracles. They would always say, there's the ruin of Jericho, if you ever doubt God's power. And just over the way is the 12 stones that we set up. And if you wait till low tide, you'll see the stones in the middle of the river where we built another monument underneath the water. You know that God honored this curse from Joshua? In 1 Kings 16.34, during the reign of Ahab, in Ahab's days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up his gates at the cost of his youngest son, Seguv, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Ahab says, let's rebuild Jericho. And Hiel says, I'll do it. And when he built it, his oldest and his youngest sons were dead. doesn't say how they died, but everybody knew what was up. That's why you see them inhabiting Jericho after this time. It was rebuilt, but it was rebuilt in disobedience. The Lord was with Joshua. And after Jericho, no one is ever going to question Joshua's leadership. Even, as we see in the next chapter, he messes up. They're still going to stay with him. However, I want to end with a different approach today. Many people question Joshua today. They didn't question him in his day. And those that have excavated the ruins of Jericho claim that we have now discovered for sure that it did not happen this way. The Bible story is made up and it's just one more log on the fire of you cannot trust the scripture. And we're going to talk a little bit about this because you hear about these things a lot. And every now and then it's good to actually defend the scripture in detail. So the most famous excavator of Tell Jericho, as it's called, the, the mound where Jericho was, was a woman named Kathleen Kenyon. She excavated the city twice, once in the 30s with a German team who actually affirmed the biblical chronology and said, we've discovered what the Bible talked about. She went back in the 50s from 52 to 58, I believe, and uh, she claimed that in fact, Jericho had been destroyed in 1550 BC and had been uninhabited until it was rebuilt more or less around the time of Ahab. And the reason she gives for that, well, hold on. First of all, why does the date matter? Because if you look at the Bible's chronology, it dates the Exodus at about 1445 BC and the conquest around 1446, 1445 BC. So for her to come in and say it was uninhabited for 150 years prior to that, that means that the Israelites walked in, found a ruin that was 150 years old, and claimed a miraculous victory. And it has been used in many textbooks and Old Testament classes to demonstrate how the Bible is a lot of myths and fables, and you cannot trust it. And the reason she said that is because what I have a picture up there, there was an absence of Cypriot pottery that was common at the time. And you might say, what, that's it? And that's exactly what I said when I read it. She says, around this time period, the 1440s, it was very common to discover in the, the layers from that period uh, pottery from Cyprus. It was very popular at the time. There's an example of it up there. And she says, since we didn't find it here, it couldn't have happened around that time. Therefore, 
My mentor who did this in the 30s, and his name escapes me, I'm sorry, was wrong, and so is the Bible. Now, I hear that, and like, you're pots? You're, you're going to question the Bible because of pots? Well, that's what they do. However, thankfully, there are other archaeologists, not only Christians, but especially Christians, who dispute these findings. The place this is excavated is a place, as I said, called Tel Jericho. A tell is a mound that uh, carries the different layers of the city, where it would be destroyed or they'd rebuild on the foundation and it it would grow into this mound that you can see there. And what they've discovered is that the city was built with two layers. They have an artist rendition here. And this is pretty exciting. So if you look at that, there's a, there's a lower wall. I'll go back to that other picture for a second. So you have that lower wall, and then you have a, some, a flat spot, and then you have a secondary wall, which if that is how it's built, and that's what the archaeology tells us, when it tells us that Rahab had a, a, a house that was in the wall, that makes perfect sense. That means she would have been living in that outer layer rather than the inner layer of the city. Now, it was built, there were two walls built on a stone retaining wall. So let's go to that next picture. This is still standing. This is the retaining wall of Jericho, upon which would have been built the city and would have been built the mud brick actual wall. So you had the stones that provided the foundation where they packed it in with earth, and they built the city, including the wall on top of that, and they made two layers of it. So that's still standing today. There's that retention wall. Now, here's what they discovered outside of that retaining wall. And this picture is not made by a Christian. This was made by Kathleen Kenyon herself of what they discovered in Jericho when they were digging. All right. So you have this black here in the middle. That's the retention wall that you just saw a picture of. That's this black right here. All this red out there is mud brick that has fallen outward. I'm going to let that sink in for a second. They go and they discover this city. They discover a retention wall on top of which would have built a, been built a wall of mud bricks. And then when they come to the city, all around the city, you find that it has fallen outward away from the city. Do you get what that is saying yet? That's the wall that came tumbling down. She says it had to have been some kind of earthquake that caused the wall to collapse. Some kind of earthquake, yes. That's a miracle. Do you understand that? This is not an apologist. This is not a Christian. This is the, as if they're more credible, but I'm just going to say it. The the secular archaeologist that looks at this and says, okay, there's where the city was. There's the retention wall. And on top of that retention wall used to be this really high wall of bricks. We didn't find the wall of bricks, but we did find a big pile mess of bricks falling around outside of the wall where they would have been built. That's exactly what you should expect to find if the walls came tumbling down. Well, it also says the city was burnt. Yes, there is a burn layer in the, the strata of Tel Jericho. Do you see the black right there? This, that's rock that has been burnt. They said that, if I'm not mistaken, it was in some places it's like a yard thick of burnt stone and burnt material that goes around the city of Jericho. They also, this other picture here that I have framed off to the side, it's black and white. I don't know if you can really tell, but you've got the circular shape at the top and then the the black in it. What those are, they found enormous jars and storehouses of grain that had been burned to a crisp. Why does that matter? First of all, you only have big stores of grain like that around harvest time. 
Secondly, it tells us that that grain was burned. It was not taken as plunder, which is what normally would have happened, and it was not eaten during a long siege. So when you start adding all of these things together, you have a city with a wall that has fallen outward. There's a burn layer, and in that layer you find things that should not have normally been burned as if the people were not taking plunder when they came up inside of it. Now people say, what about the separate pottery that's missing? Well, here's what you do have. Archaeologists have found imitation Cypriot pottery in Jericho, meaning it's the same shape, it's the same style. It had style back then. It wasn't all like dirt and mud, right? The same style, the same colors even, but it's not the same kind. What does that tell us? It tells us that they were not shopping at the boutique stores. They had to go to Dollar Tree and get the knockoff in Jericho. Also, the other city, Hazor, that was burned, that is generally accepted to have been burned in the conquest, and there it is, they found the same kind of pottery in that place, in their destruction lair, that they found in Jericho, which meant that whenever Hazor was destroyed, that's when Jericho was destroyed. And people generally assume that Hazor was destroyed in the conquest, therefore Jericho should have been. Not only that, but Jericho was burned. Not only that, but they found the walls fallen outward. Not only that, but they found that it had not been plundered. Well, what do the historical records say? You've only got one historical record and it's sitting in your lap. The Bible is a primary source. People forget that so often. They say, well, Jericho was destroyed. The walls fell down and they burned it to a crisp. What do we find? A city whose walls have fallen down that was burned to a crisp around the same time as this other city that was burned to a crisp, which is also the only of three one of the only cities that was burned during this time. We are justified in our faith in this story. Can you go back to the picture of the, the different strata, the red and the yellow? So let's, let's think this through. So you come up to this, this village, this city. It's got this big high wall in front of you. Okay, how are we getting up in there? Well, we're going to have to break down the gates, but the gates are locked. So what are we going to do? They often always also would destroy whatever ramps or whatever uh, steps they had to get up. So how are we going to get in there? Well, if the wall falls outward, what the Lord did is he provided a natural siege ramp for the people to run up into the city. And in fact, what does it say in the book of Joshua? That they went up into the city. Now that could just be the Hebrew way of talking, or it could be exactly what happened. What am I trying to show you? I'm trying to show you that these people will come in and they'll say, archaeologists have proven that Jericho did not fall when it fell. You dig deeper under that and it turns out we didn't find the kind of pots we wanted. Just, I, I need to stress this for you guys. Sometimes these academic disciplines close ranks with each other. And they'll just say things as fact that people who are just as qualified are disputing and in fact say go along with the scriptures. Oh, we didn't find Cypriot pottery. Well, we found imitation Cypriot pottery, and uh, we found the same kind of this city over here. We don't know why there's all these bricks falling down around where the wall would have been. Now, somebody might say, well, I don't know if I believe in miracles. Well, at the very least, you should believe that the walls came falling down around the time somebody charged in and burned it. And at that point, you might as well just believe what the scriptures say. So we trust the story. And we trust the curse that Joshua placed upon it that was eventually fulfilled in the life of Hiel. Should we not therefore trust the ultimate purpose of these stories? 
1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, Paul said these things were written down for our benefit upon whom have come the end of the age. You say, oh, I'll stand and fight to the death that this really happened, and that's what the Bible says. Okay, good. But are you taking an equally strong stand on your obedience to the Lord against the Jerichos that you face? God wants to smash your stronghold. And it's very, I don't want to say cheap, because it's not cheap, it's good, but it's easy to stand up and say, God's going to break through every barrier, and we're gonna, I believe a breakthrough, and it's coming. All right. But that comes through obedience. We're going to walk on water. Not if you don't get out of the boat, you won't. God's going to give me victory over lust. All right. Well, the way God told you to have victory over lust is run for your life. Are you doing that? God's going to give me victory over anxiety and depression and fear. Okay. The Lord said, pray and start thinking different. Are you doing that? I ask you this question because I want to see the walls come tumbling down in your life too. I want to see you set free in Christ Jesus. I want you to see that there's nowhere in the promised land where the devil can hide from you if you will walk in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's nothing for God to knock down a wall. We can do that. You get a big enough stick and knock down a wall. God says, I can change your life. I can deliver you from addiction. I can deliver you from fear. I can deliver you from persistent sin. I can deliver you from any circumstance you face. I can heal your body. I can provide for your every need. Obey Jesus. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I command you? Oh, I love Jesus so much. Jesus says, if you love me, do as I command. What kind of love is that? You ever hear that? Uh, Death Cab for Cutie wrote a song about this. I had to stop liking that song once I realized the point they were making. When they said, oh, the love of God is to obey God. That's not real. That's an abusive husband is what that is. <laughs> you love your wife different than you love your kids. And you love your dad differently than you love your wife. And you love your friends differently than you love your family. You love God differently than you love anybody else. To love God is to bow the knee to God and to walk in obedience to God because it's for your good anyway. So Christians in this room today, start walking in obedience to the instructions God has given you. I will pray with you and, and walk with you every step of the way to see that stronghold come falling down. But until you are willing to actually say no to sin and yes to righteousness, you're going to keep on struggling. Wouldn't you rather see those walls come falling down that you might charge in and take the victory that Jesus has for you?